Sunday morning studying the book of 1 Corinthians in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. We come to chapter 7. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and they'll get a Bible to you. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world is not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he behaves, is behaving improperly toward his virgin or virgin daughter, if she has passed the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she pleases only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of the Lord. So good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel Single Ministries. Um, Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord, every jot and every tittle. We thank you for all that is bound up in this passage that searches and edifies all that is intended to make us like Jesus, the one that we want to be like. And Lord, we ask that you take this passage and you would speak to us individually and personally 
right from your heart and from your throne by your Holy Spirit. Teach us a little bit more about what it means to be a Christian, whether single or whether married. We pray that you give great life to this passage and great application. We just respect you. We love you so much. We reverence you. And we just reverence, Lord, and treasure the opportunity to turn to your word and to hear your voice and to receive your wisdom. Give us ears to hear this morning. The power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We want to refresh our memories a little bit in that we've been separated from our series in 1 Corinthians for a number of weeks through the Christmas season and, and beyond. And, and to be reminded that beginning in chapter 7 all the way through to the end of the book, that the Apostle Paul is answering questions that have been posed to him by letter by the Christians there in the church at Corinth. And so he covers a very broad variety of subject matter between chapter 7 and all the way to the end of the book. Questions regarding marriage, sex and celibacy, singleness, living with a spouse who isn't a Christian, eating food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, uh, the resurrection from the dead. These subjects are subjects that he addresses in response to their questions. As we saw a number of weeks ago in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul began the answering of all of these questions by beginning with this subject of marriage. And earlier in this chapter, he's instructed us that as Christians we are to possess a very, very, very high view of marriage. But now later in the chapter, he instructs us and goes on to make sure that we do not come to think that possessing a high view of marriage must mean in turn that we hold a low view of remaining single or being unmarried. And thus in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul calls upon Christians who are single to give very, very serious consideration to remaining single for a variety of reasons that he's about to speak to us about. But he doesn't just address singles in this passage. He also addresses those of us who are married, and he challenges us and exhorts us not to use marriage as an excuse for not engaging in the Lord's work. When our, our eternal reward is at stake, not our salvation, but our reward in heaven hinges on the proper use of so short a time. Now in this passage, the Apostle Paul is addressing three different groups of Christians who are single. In verses 25 through 35, he addresses those who are single having never been married. That's what he's communicating when he begins in verse 25 by addressing virgins. I also want to be very quick to add from verse 25 that when Jesus says 
in terms of this teaching here, that he has no commandment from Jesus related to this teaching. He is simply saying that Jesus did not explicitly um, address the subject matter that he addresses here during the course of his public ministry. But it doesn't mean at all that what Paul says here is any less authoritative because it's inspired by the Holy uh, Spirit. Now, he tells us the second group that he addresses here in terms of groups of Christians who are unmarried are those who are unmarried and they want to marry, but they're not free to marry culturally because they're not free to make that decision on their own. They live in a culture where the father uh, makes that decision. And I, I have no doubt that this very specific question was addressed to the Apostle Paul by uh, these fathers or people that were in this kind of a place from uh, the church of Corinth. The cultural background of all of this is that in the ancient world, it was dominant. But it wasn't just, um, you know, a characteristic of the ancient world. It is a characteristic of much of the non-Western world today. That it is, it was and is the father who makes all of the major decisions concerning the family and including if a child should marry or not and who they should marry. And apparently there were fathers of daughters in the church at Corinth who took that responsibility very, very seriously as the head of their household and wanting only to make the very best decision for their daughters in the eyes of the Lord had decided that the best thing that they could do for their child's life, the best plan for their child's life would be that they remain single all of their lives in order to serve the Lord without distraction. That's a very noble desire on their part. But Paul educates them a little bit that it fails to take into consideration uh, one thing that is most important of all, and that is that a person needs to actually be called to a single life and to be supernaturally equipped to live a single life, that it's a gift from God. He wrote earlier in the chapter in verse 7, speaking of both single Christians and married Christians, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so it takes a gift from God to marry and to make that Christian marriage one that represents the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. But it also requires a gift from God, a supernatural enablement for a person to live a single life, which means includes remaining celibate all of their life sexually in order to uh, serve the Lord more distraction-free uh, as a result. And a person either has that gift or they don't have that gift. And he's saying to the fathers, if you have a daughter who longs to be married and you've decided that she's going to be single for life in order to serve the Lord, you've got to find out whether she has that gift or not. That's, that 
And if she's longing to be married, she wants companionship, she wants the physical relationship as a part of her life, it's an indication that she doesn't have the gift of celibacy. Let her marry. And, and so he's trying to get them to think more broadly related to that. But at any rate, he makes the point that from the context of being single or being married, each requires a special gift of God's grace. And Paul's instruction to these fathers was, let her marry, let her choose. You're not compromising as the father and allowing her to marry. You're not harming her spiritually in any way in doing that. You're not limiting God's plan for her life by allowing her to marry and uh And because in strongly desiring to be married, she's revealing that she doesn't have a gift from God to live otherwise. And so when he talks in verse 36 about a man uh, behaving improperly toward his virgin, it's talking about a father um, uh, uh, behaving improperly toward his uh, virgin daughter by not allowing her to marry if she doesn't have the gift of celibacy. The third group that he addresses here of Christians who are single in verse 39 and 40 is uh, those that have been widowed. Uh, There's been the death of a spouse, and uh, so he declares that the surviving spouse who is a Christian is free to remarry, but only to remarry uh, another Christian. But even there, Paul calls on uh, men and women who have be- recently become widows or widowers to give some serious and strong consideration uh, to the benefits of remaining single in order to use their uh, new liberty for the purpose of giving themselves more fully to the service of the Lord, that they should really seek the mind of the Lord related to all of this. Clearly, the Apostle Paul did not view being single as a liability. He viewed it as something that was unique, as something that was valuable, um, indeed so valuable that no one ought to uh, exchange it even for such a good thing as marriage without really thinking about the consequences of it and what a person gives up by moving from being a single person to being married. Now, interwoven throughout all of his instruction here is, again, that desire for the single person to strongly consider remaining single. And that's the word of this passage to every single person who is a a Christian in this room today. That's what Paul wants you to think about. He's not going to put a guilt trip on you and say you can't marry, but he wants you to think about it. And uh, in, in this whole passage where he lays all of this out, I like it in verse 35, he talks about saying, I, I say all of this not that I may put a leash on you. And the word leash could just as easily be translated a noose or a lasso. He says, I'm not telling you the benefits of remaining single and giving that serious consideration with the idea of lassoing you into legalism or taking your freedom to choose away from you or to guilt you into remaining a single. He said, that's not my intention at all in all of this. I don't want you in a state that isn't consistent with your calling 
and with your gifting. And he's very careful all the way through here in verse 28, in verse 35, verse 36, verse 37. He says it over and over again. I'm not guilting you into staying single, but I do want you to think about some things. There's with, almost without a doubt the Apostle Paul was married at one time in his life. At the time that he becomes, the time of his uh, writing of the epistles and his apostolic journeys, he is a single. So he understands marriage, he understands single, being single very, very well. Now, notice several reasons that the Apostle gives uh, for Christians who are single to seriously consider remaining single. First, he says in verse 26, it's good because of the present distress. And what he's saying to the Christians that were living at that time and in the church at Corinth is that apparently at the time of Paul, there was some kind of a distress going on in the world, some kind of a major problem that was happening in the world certainly in the Roman Empire, that he was aware of and the Christians were aware of in the church as as well. And so there was some kind of a troubling time, an unsettling time that was, was happening. Paul doesn't identify the cause of the distress for us, but I don't think it's unlikely that he's referring to an expanding persecution of Christians that was occurring at that time uh, in within the Roman Empire. And Paul had already experienced tremendous uh, persecution, not only by the Jews, but also by the Romans. And no doubt he anticipated that it would get worse. And, of course, all historical records uh, indicate all too well that he was right. The fact of the matter is, is that when religious persecution comes, it is more easily faced by a single person than a married person. I don't say that it's easily faced. I say that it is more easily faced by a single person than by a married person. Because no matter how fearsome martyrdom might be to a single person, it's doubly fearsome to a married person who has the added responsibility of a spouse or of children. You take, for example, a husband who's about to be martyred for his uh, faith. And as he faces that martyrdom, he not only has to deal with facing the martyrdom, his impending death in just a moment or two, but he also wonders, what in the world are these persecutors going to do to my wife one minute after I am dead? The same thing is true of a wife or a mother who is facing martyrdom for her faith. She not only has to face the fullness of her coming death, but then her mind and her heart is filled with wondering what in the world are my persecutors going to do to and with my children one minute after my death. And this isn't just something that Christians dealt with 2,000 years ago, and isn't it wonderful that we live in a more enlightened age. This is going on all over the world Today, it is going on all over the world, even as we sit as Christians in in this room here this morning. In Korea, North Korea, in Syria, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Sudan, in the Central African Republic, and many, many other places as well. When they would read 
when Christians in other parts of the world, because of their culture and what they're facing, they don't read this as just like a theoretical Bible study um, that everybody ought to, I guess, know in case we get asked on jeopardy and there's a category on singleness from the Bible that we don't get aced out on all of that money. This is where a lot of people live, Christians live, to this day all over the world. And so the same principle is true today. In distressing times, it's easier to be single than married in many ways. The second uh, advantage to being single that he lists here in verse 28 is that a married person will have trouble in the flesh. And the high divorce rate in the United States of America testifies to the fact that marriage is not always easy for people. You're taking two descendants of Adam and Eve, selfish, terminally selfish, fallen nature, rough is all around the edges, and now you're going to take these two lives, not only make them one, not only have them in almost a constant contact with one another, but now bring those lives together that for anyone in the whole world to look at their lives, they see the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. That's not an easy thing that happens. There's trouble that's involved in all of that happening. It's wonderful, but it isn't easy. The Greek word for our English word trouble that's used in that verse, verse 28, is thlipsis, and it speaks of a crushing trouble. It speaks of the kind of thing that they would do in the ancient world where if they were interrogating you or wanting to break you down, they'd put a great plank of wood across your chest, put a great stone on the top of it so that as you would exhale your breath, you could not re-inhale. And basically it would uh, suffocate you. And this is what the word uh, indicates. And so it speaks of a great weight, a great pressing down upon a person And there is more pressure on a married person than on a single person because the married person has to navigate the same world that the single person does, but with trouble not only navigate all of that trouble not only with themselves in mind, but also with the added burden of bringing their spouses and their spouse and their family through the trouble as well. And that's a lot of responsibility. That's a great weight upon a husband and upon a wife. And this brings us to our third reason. In verse 32, Paul tells us that being single is a more carefree life in terms of personal responsibility. He doesn't say, and I don't say, that it's carefree. No one lives a carefree life in this fallen world. But we do say, as Paul says here, that the single person does live a more carefree life in terms of personal responsibilities. And that's why Paul said he commends singleness by saying, but I want you to be without care. On a personal level, being married is a much more complicated life than being single. There's more responsibility to being married. There's a larger number of people that have to be taken into consideration in decisions that are made once a person is married. And a married person has to not only provide uh, food and clothing and shelter for himself or herself, 
not just for one person, but for an entire family. And not only food and shelter and clothing, but medical care, dental care, taking care of them, and all of these other kind of things that are our responsibilities and that a person now doesn't have to look at just related to their own life, but now they have to think of it in the context of an entire family. And then you find out as you have a, a, a wife and then as, as you have children, now you're driving them all over the place. They've got soccer practice over here and they've got ballet practice over here and then they've got guitar lessons over here and then they've got this thing and over here and over here and then now you can't get along with one car anymore. Now you've got to have two cars. A single person can just have one car. One insurance bill, one, 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 one. A single person can just, anytime they want to do in life, any decision they want to make, they can just make it and go. Single person can wake up in the morning, here they are single, head down to Costco, fill up their tank, and the next time you hear from them, they phone in you from Florida. <laughs> they got freedom. They can go. They can do all kinds of things. A married person is, oh, Florida. Oh, my. I got my wife and I got the kids and I got the school and I got the thing here and I got the vacation time here and, and now we're going to the stops and, the, the, and they got to think about a whole world of things. Every decision in life becomes bigger. A single person is only responsible for themselves. And they can move and do more easily, more simply, more strategically. You give an announcement if I were to come up or one of the pastors were to announce this morning, hey, listen, we got a short notice related to a, a, a medical missions trip to Cambodia as, as Dr. Bigelow's just come back from or wherever it might be or an opportunity to go to the Philippines to help clean up after the typhoon or whatever it is. And you hear about that and a single person can be very strategic and saying, yes, I can do that. I'm going to jump on board. All I got to do is figure out my work schedule. I think that can happen. A married person, they've got a whole world of things they've got to move in order to uh, move on something, even if they've got months to plan uh, and almost always kind of aced out when, uh, when something has to be done strategically and, and quickly. And a single person has advantages in that way. Fourth, in verse 35, Paul tells us a Christian who is single is able to serve the Lord without distraction in a way that a married person Cannot, and it is very, very true. A marriage relationship is wonderful, but like any relationship, it's very time consuming. Uh, it takes time to nurture and uh, develop a, re- a healthy relationship and then to keep that relationship, uh, keep it healthy. There's lots of conversations, there's a lot of talking, there's a lot of listening, there's a lot of being together, all of, of those things. All of that is wonderful, but it is very, very true. And all of that time for a single person can then be directed uh, instead toward God's work. When my wife Karen is gone from home for a few days 
and maybe she's gone to a women's conference or something like that, and she's gone maybe for three days or something, I can get a mountain of work done in her absence. I can get weeks of work done in just three days of her absence. I don't have to bathe. I don't have to change my clothes. I don't have to clean up after every meal. I don't have to wipe the counter off or squeegee down the shower or any of those things. I'm free to do all that in the five minutes before she comes in the door. So I get a ton of work done. It's not worth it to me, her absence, but it's a truth. And everybody recognizes it and understands it. Being married, it does affect your freedom. And it further limits your free time. And if you want the ultimate freedom to serve the Lord, that's the highest priority in your life, then it is found in remaining unmarried. And all these things Paul lays out again. And he's not just wasting his breath. It's every person in this room that is single. He's not guilting you. He's not lassoing you. He's not putting you in a noose. But he's just saying, now stop and think about these things. You may marry anyway, but at least you'll go into it with eyes wide open and you will know what you will have to sacrifice in order to do that. And I'll tell you, it's very good insight and very, very good input. Now, finally... Paul speaks to us in this passage and as he's to the married, both singles and married, and in emphasizing the advantages of being single concerning committing ourselves to the work of of God in this world, Paul doesn't want anyone to conclude that marriage can then be used as an excuse for not getting involved in the work of God in this world, or that I'm free because I'm married to disregard his individual call upon my lives. So people can look at the passage and say, well, Paul talked about all of the singles and how much time they had, so I guess it's up to the singles to commit to fulfill the Great Commission. We're too busy being married. Mm -mm 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 Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. He wants to make sure nobody goes there and misunderstands that about what it is that he's saying. Both married and singles, we are to realize and to be influenced by the realization that time is short, he tells us in verse 29. And he's going to lay out all of this of this point in verses 29 through 31. And the word that he uses for short there, there's a lot of words in the Greek you can use for short. He uses a particular one. And it literally means compressed, finite, drawing to a close. Time is short. It's limited. It's finite. It's compressed. It's drawing to a close. And that can speak to the rapture of the church and the Lord coming to take us to be with him as Christians. And the rapture of the church is closer today than it ever has been before. 
Time is shorter than it's ever been before, between now and the rapture. It's more compressed than it's ever been before. It's more limited than it's ever been before. And it's interesting, you think about the Apostle Paul living 2,000 years ago. He waited for a rapture that we are still waiting for. But he waited, he lived in expectancy of that rapture, the finiteness of the time uh, between now and the rapture influenced him in terms of his Christian service. You think, what in the world, how, if Paul thought the time was short 2,000 years ago, what would he do if he sat down and just picked up but one daily newspaper in the United States of America today and read it from cover to cover in terms of the condition of the world? It's not just only the rapture that makes time finite and compressed. As Christians, the end of each of our lives before we go to heaven is closer today than it's ever been before. You say, that's not that perky. Listen, I don't do perky. (laughs) That's just the way that it is. If the Lord doesn't return for us in our lifetime, our lifetime if we get to live it all the way out, and we will, and the the life that God has for us until we go to heaven, it's compressing. By the day, it's compressing and growing shorter and shorter. And the time that we have to invest toward... the, The time that we have to invest in serving the Lord and to invest in one day hearing from Jesus that well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord... And no Christian life can ever be deemed successful that does not hear that ultimately from the mouth of Jesus. That time is finite, it's limited, it's compressed, it's drawing to a close. And it's true. So you say, what do we do about it? And Paul tells us what we need to do about it. It's so nice. Paul brings these things up and he just doesn't leave us. He knows it's a rubber meets the road. Okay, Paul, you're telling us stuff. This is pretty heavy stuff. What can I do about it? And he goes on to tell us what we can do about it. And he tells us in those verses, because of this, he said, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, before any of you husbands get excited, (laughs) thinking you found the verse, he is not saying that we are to neglect our marriages. He has spent the entire earlier section of chapter 7 speaking of the importance of nurturing and and committing time and making good decisions and making a priority of marriage in our lives and how to care for our marriages. But here's what he's saying. It's very significant. He's saying that we are not to consider marriage to be a release from Christian service. We are not to consider Christian marriage to be a release from Christian service. And he's saying here that if God's calling upon the life of a Christian couple requires periods of separation in order for his plan for their lives to be fulfilled, then they are to accept that sacrifice and be obedient to God's plan. I think about how many married Christians I know personally and how many I have read about in reading Christian biography and reading church history 
who have made a tremendous impact for the kingdom of God, but it required a great personal sacrifice maritally in order for it to be so. Long seasons of separation or continued short seasons of separation, weeks at a time, six weeks, uh, four weeks, three months at a time, where people are gone and separated from one another in order to fulfill God's call uh, upon their life. And that Christian couples experience this for the whole extent of their life, 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of marriage, they're willing to make that sacrifice. They don't neglect their marriage or their spouse. Indeed, they couldn't do what they do without a healthy marriage. But both partners refuse to sacrifice the demands of God's call upon their lives upon the altar of their marriage. They could ignore God's call and they could settle into the kind of married life that they see in people all around them where the husband and wife and the family are home together at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock and then for the rest of the evening, and that's the portion, that's the rhythm of their life, week in and week out for all of their lives. But they choose to make their marriage a servant to their Christian service. And when that Christian service requires sacrifice and even separation at time for the fulfillment of it, they take and make uh, their marriage a servant to the Christian service. And I think that virtually all missionaries in church history fall into this category. All missionaries pay some kind of a price within their marriage, some sacrifice that they make in order to fulfill that calling. I think of modern-day examples. Among my own friends alone would include people like K.P. and Gisela Johannan or Gail and Ada Irwin or Don and Jean McClure. And I could go on and on to speak of others. I was recently listening to a teaching by Ravi Zacharias. He was doing an apologetics conference down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Ravi Zacharias is an apologist, a Christian man, one of the greatest apologists alive today. And he spends his whole life going from airport to airport to airport to nation to nation to continent to continent. And he just kind of let his hair down, so to speak, as he was talking in front of a congregation that was very affirming of him and his faith in the Lord Jesus. You just have to go onto YouTube and and get Ravi Zacharias and see the kind of environments and the debates that he goes in. They're very hostile environments so often. And to be in an affirming environment for his faith meant a lot to him. And he began just to talk and not any kind of way to produce self-pity, but what it meant to him to be among Christians on that night and the sacrifice of going from one place to the next, to the next, to the next. And he loves the calling on his life. He loves to go and to speak of the, the, 
of, of the Lord and why a basis in a, a, a faith in God and a faith in Jesus is rational and all of these different things that he, he deals with. He loves all of it, but you listen to him and you can feel a little tiredness in his bones and get a sense of the sacrifice that both he and his wife uh, have made and their relationship uh, with one another and the amount of time that they're able to be together in order to fulfill this, this greater call that is upon both of their lives. You think about how many pastors and Christian workers in China and Africa and India, the Islamic world, who are today imprisoned and separated from their husbands and their wives because their husband, the husband and the wife both decided to be faithful to God's call upon their life whatever it might mean in terms of self-sacrifice concerning their marriage. That husband loves his wife as much as we love our wives. He would like to share that home and and be home as much as any of us would want to be home with our wife. And those women that are imprisoned would want the same thing. They love their husband as much as you love your husbands and long for a simple and a quiet and a peaceful uh, and alone kind of life as much as anyone would long for it. And what is true of them concerning God's call upon their life is also to be true regarding God's call upon each of our lives as well as married people. We are never to elevate our own personal dreams and desires for our marriages above God's plan and his purposes for our marriages and for our lives. Because we don't want to miss that well done, thou good and faithful servant, because we elevated our marriage above his call and weren't willing to make the sacrifices from within the marriage to make it possible and then produce a marriage that is priceless, altogether more valuable than it would otherwise be. Someone might be highly tempted to interject at this point, but you're being polite. Someone might say, but isn't it equally possible to sinfully neglect a marriage for the sake of Christian service? And my answer would be, of course. And that is probably the more predominant problem in many ways and in many circles. And I could spend a great deal of time addressing that particular fact from the Scriptures, and it would be time very well spent. But that is not the extreme that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this passage. He is addressing the opposite extreme in the passage that we're studying this morning. He is not declaring that we are to disregard our responsibilities in marriage, but again, simply that we are not to consider marriage to be a release from Christian service. Notice in verse 30, he tells us that those who weep should be as though they do not weep. 
And here we have the sorrow and the weeping that can occur because of the circumstances of life in this world. But no matter what the heartbreak or the sorrows or the disasters or the losses we experience in this fallen world, those things are not to incapacitate us concerning our Christian service. The fact of the matter is those kinds of shipwreck and those kind of heartaches and those kind of disappointments and that kind of sorrow and that kind of weeping in life, those experiences, they only serve to make us more understanding and more compassionate and more fruitful in our Christian service. We can't let them lame us or cripple us and send us off into a dark corner somewhere, and not to realize that this too makes me more like Christ, and I will use it for His glory. He says in verse 30, those who rejoice should be as those who did not rejoice. And the word rejoice means it speaks of happiness, it speaks of gladness. And happiness and gladness are wonderful things in life, but they're never to become idols in our lives. Something that causes us to say no to God's call upon our lives in order to protect our happiness or to protect our gladness. Emotions can become as great an idol in our lives as any material thing. The love for pleasure and happiness can become as great an idol in our lives as the worship of any material thing. And if God calls us to serve him in some physical place in the world that doesn't evoke happiness or gladness at the mention of that city or of that nation or of that continent or of that neighborhood because those are tough, hard, heartbreaking places to serve the Lord, but they are still a part of the spiritual harvest field in the world. We are not to make an addiction to gladness or to happiness keep us from going into that place. And if God has called us to serve him with a calling that consistently puts us in an emotional environment, that's filled with broken people and damaged people and hurt people and hopeless people and even depressed people. And to say yes to that calling and to that ministry, you know is going to be at the expense of my rejoicing or my happiness or my gladness. We are still to engage in that ministry in that place anyway. We are to sacrifice our own unbroken happiness in life in order to bring truth and love and joy to those who so desperately need it. Nobody will ever become a pastor who idolizes happiness and gladness because you get exposed to too much. Too much heartache, too much pain, too much difficulty. And if a person is addicted to happiness and gladness, they will never enter into the pastorate. It's interesting. I mentioned last Sunday night at the prayer meeting 
Do you realize in the United States of America, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry a week? The latest statistic that I've heard is 3,500 a week. And how to get this group that is leaving to then fill in those blank spots, but not just among pastors. But what about elders? What about deacons? What about children's church workers? What about, what about, what about? But to enter into these callings is going to be at the sacrifice of our happiness and our gladness because of what we'll be exposed to. But it'll make us deeper Christians and it'll make us more like Christ. I think about chaplains today, whether they're in law enforcement chaplaincy like Don Loudermilk who attends here or military chaplaincy like Steve Olszewski is involved in. Think about the pain. Think about the heartache, the difficulty. If they made an idol of their happiness and their gladness, they would never enter in. And no one like them would ever enter into the need of those ministries. What counselor is going to make an idol of their pleasure or their own happiness and ever enter into counseling and be exposed to what a person is exposed to there? Christians who sense a call to the medical field and and, and maybe uh, medical missions or uh, someone who feels a call to become a hospice nurse people who are called in this ministry to be a part of the Faithful Friends Nursing Home Ministry. That's not an easy place to serve the Lord and to go into and see what you see and hear what you hear, the greatness of the need. And Paul comes along and says, let those who rejoice should be as though they did not rejoice. We don't idolize happiness, and we don't idolize gladness when we're called to a greater thing, to experience joy and to bring that into the greatness of human need. And he tells us further in verse 30, those who buy should be as those who did not possess. It's okay to have possessions. You can't live without having possessions, but our possessions are never to become an idol in our lives. We should never say no to God's call upon our life because of a love for or an addiction to possessions. And the simple reason is because all of that is going to burn. It's not, no, no material thing or possession is worth saying no to the call of God upon our lives for. Because most of what we own, we will lose before we die. It won't even be at the point of our death. And then everything is lost, materially speaking, to give way to something far superior for the Christian when we go into heaven. All of it is going to burn. And so he tells us in verse 31, those who use this world should not misuse it. In other words, we shouldn't abuse it. And uh, the idea is uh, we should use this world, but we shouldn't be using it to the full. And the idea that he's speaking about here is that we can use the world and all that is in it but we're to touch it lightly, we're to drink of it sparingly, we are not to desperately tie to drink life in this world dry. You say, what are you saying? Here's the person that it speaks about. 
It speaks to the person who's afraid that they'll miss out on life by serving the Lord. And so they're tempted to ignore his call in order to follow some passion in their life, to drink the world dry in terms of experiencing every experience that life has to offer. Paul says the problem with all of that is there's no well done at the end of that kind of a life. And it won't result in the satisfaction and the fulfillment that it promises because that's only found in God's call upon our lives. And he tells us finally in verse 31 that we're to live this way for the simple reason or how we're to live, we're to live this way for the simple reason that all of this is passing away. None of these things is eternal. Not even our tears are eternal. Not even our heartbreaks are eternal. And because none of these things is eternal, Paul says, why would anyone live supremely for a world that's going to pass away when we can live for a kingdom that's going to go on forever and ever and ever? And we are to engage in all of these other things on some level, he says, but we are only to live supremely for eternity and the things of God because only those things will outlive this life. There's a famous missionary, English missionary to China, and then he became a missionary to India, and then he became a missionary to the continent of Africa by the name of C.T. Studd. And he encapsulates all that Paul is saying in this passage into this simple saying that he is famous for. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Whether for a Christian who is a single or married. And so this passage speaks to singles. And Paul pleads by the Spirit of God to give serious consideration to remaining single if you have the gift to do so for all of the reasons that he has laid out. Not to guilt you into it. Not to make you feel terrible if you marry one day. But just to take a few minutes and to think about this before you give your singleness away. And who else is going to tell you those things but God? Your mom isn't going to tell you that. Get married. What's wrong with you? Paul comes in and says, think about it. Think about it. You may end up marrying, but you'll know what you gave up. And you'll have gone into it with eyes wide open. And to those of us who are Christians and married in this room, he emphasizes to us that marriage is not a release from Christian work and service. Now, why would he tell singles that and married people that? Except we have a need to hear it. And so now you know. Let's stand together and we'll pray.
Father, nobody talks like this. Not in the world that I'm exposed to in this world. This runs completely counter. And we thank you for your voice. We thank you that you not only speak to us, but you know how to bring your Holy Spirit right alongside what your word says and then to speak to us personally. And Lord, this passage has taken, in my experience, to be sped read through and reading through the Bible in the course of the year and for those of us who are married to think that's good instruction for single people. And we never let it get near us. And we just ask this morning, you've gone to such effort to communicate this to us. And we just plead with you that you would not allow it to be a sermon that goes in one ear and out the other or a sermon and a passage that is forgotten before we get to the back doors of the sanctuary but that you would keep it alive in our lives and speak to us personally from this passage whether married or whether single. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. Speak, Lord. We want to be a church that has ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. And so let this passage do its needed work in each one of our lives supernaturally. And we ask it of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.